This podcast is presented to you by Pastors Tom and Bonnie Deschal from Celebration Church in Harare, Zimbabwe. For more information, please visit celebrationmen.org. Before I get into the message and before I give you the title, I'd like to just talk to you a little bit about uh, what I think God wants to do in our lives. And much of what he wants to do in our life and what he wants to do for Celebration Ministries and what he's doing in the church at large around the world is being hindered. And it's being hindered by what I call interpretation wars. Interpretation wars. The, what, what, what do I mean by that? I, I, I think that sometimes when we read the Bible, if you don't know how to study the Word of God, if you don't know how to interpret the Word of God, if, you, if no one's ever instructed you, then you can make the Bible say anything you want to. And we have a lot of people today making the Bible say things that the Bible doesn't really say. Uh, how many of you know you can take a scripture out of context and make it say just about anything you want it to say? And so we have a lot of preaching today that kind of has an agenda, and we find a scripture to make our agenda come to pass. But the truth of the matter is we have to all learn how to read the Bible. And the reason that there are messed up interpretations is because we've been re-educated. We've been re-educated, and we no longer use logic nor do we use biblical standards for determining right and wrong. In fact, most of you, in fact, uh, all of our children have grown up in a world where we have now what are called situational ethics. Situational ethics. Where it's no longer the truth that matters, it's high emotions, feelings. If you feel strongly about something, well, then you can twist facts to fit your emotions. There's five principles for understanding Bible studies. When you read the Bible, when you study the Bible, there are five things you need to know. And I'm going to put them up, and I'd like you to take a snapshot of it on, on your phone. I'd like you to write it down. But I'd like you to think about this, and I'd like you to use this when you read the Bible. This is not my message, but I think it's important. Because if we don't educate people, if I don't educate you on how to read your Bible, then I think that we do you a disservice. And I think much of the body of Christ is moving away from biblical foundations. And we're moving into emotional solutions which will not solve our problems. So number one, when you, of the five principles of understanding Bible studies, you can put the screen up, you can put that up on the screen, is observation. When you read the scripture, you observe it. For what does it really say? What is it saying? What is it that you're saying? So, of course, first of all, we have observation. Secondly, you look for interpretation. So you have to read it, first of all, from just the fact of observing the context of where it's at, what it was actually saying, what it's saying to you, to, to, to you what's it saying in the situation. Secondly, interpretation. What does it mean? What does it mean to me? What does it mean in the situation you interpret it. We have to interpret Scripture. And one of the ways we interpret Scripture is we let other Scriptures interpret Scripture. Then you go to application. How does the Scripture apply to you in its context? You see, the Bible, we believe, is set forth in a way that God uses patterns, stories, illustrations, 
that we can find in the scriptures. And inside of those stories are principles, patterns and principles. If we can look at the pattern, if we can observe the pattern, if we can interpret what that pattern's about, and then find the principles, we can make application of those principles in our lives. And those principles then should give us the same results as we see in the pattern. Once you've made the application or once you begin to apply it in your life, the Bible's not meant to be read as a storybook and say, oh, that was nice about something else. Or it's not a, like a legal book. It's a legal brief. You pick it up when you need some proof text. No, it's a living book. It's to give you life and how to live. Once you have the application, then we do the correlation. How does the application and the interpretation gel with other scriptures, gel with other passages of the Bible, other writers, other writers of scripture who wrote by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? You cannot have one scripture to base your truth on. That's not how the Bible works. In fact, there's a pattern of study of the Bible. If you find a truth, you must go back all the way through the scriptures to find first mention. That's where it's most powerful. Where does this truth first mentioned? We have a problem in our churches today that we find one scripture. We take it out of context. And out of context, it can lead you into distraction. We have some people that don't even read the Bible anymore. What they do is they just open their Bible and they say, okay, God, speak to me. You know, that can be dangerous. One guy was reading the Bible and he was doing that. He opened it and he put his finger down it says, and it says, and Judas went and hung himself. He said, oh, no, that can't be right. So he opened it again and he put his finger down. It says, that which thou doest, do quickly. <laughs> Folks, let me tell you something. The Bible is not a magical book. The Bible is not something that you, you get a quick fix from. The Bible is to be studied. It's to be applied. It's to be dug down. It's, it, it's to be layered in your life and, and to speak to you. And finally, once God begins to speak to you, seek a divine confirmation. Let God confirm his word to you. This is when God can use the voice of your pastor. He preaches and it says, oh my gosh, that's what God was saying to me. And it is a confirmation. This is when God can use a prophetic word to confirm what he's already saying to you. This is when God can use the circumstances of your life, the situation you find yourself in and you say, this is what God has been saying. I'm shocked at how many people are looking for a prophetic word to tell them what the Bible should already be telling you. I'm shocked at how many are looking for circumstances to guide them. If you get that way, if, you, if, you, if you're led that way, you will not be led by God. You'll be led by your circumstances. You'll be led by emotions. And God will confirm to give you understanding that what you're studying, what he's showing you, is correct. You see, because we've used our emotions, because we've used our experiences as our standard, many Christians and many believers are being led into error. Error. The Bible stands alone. The word of God stands alone. Let God be true and every man a liar. Let the word of God be true. Study the scriptures to show yourselves approved. A workman that need not be ashamed but can rightly divide the word of truth. Amen?
Just tap your neighbor and say, I think his preaching is better than your amening this morning. And open, and then now you can open your Bibles to the book of Revelations, the third chapter. And the title of my message for this morning is The Lukewarm Church. I think it's appropriate after that little introduction, don't you? Restore us, O God, O Lord of hosts. Restore us, O God. Psalm 80 is where we've been at for the last couple of weeks, and we'll be there for the next couple of weeks, talking about God's restoration, his restoration of believers, the restoration of the church, the restoration of your heart, the restoration of families. God wants to to restore us, but we need to seek him for restoration. When I was studying and preparing for this, I went to the last book of the Bible. It speaks of the end times. It speaks of the imminent return of Jesus Christ. It speaks of the conditions, the condition of the church before Jesus would return. And we pick up in the book of Revelation, the third chapter. This is the apostle John. He is writing to the churches of Asia, the churches of Asia Minor. And these are very, very powerful letters. They're very short. They're very brief. They're very concise. But he's speaking to the church. He's speaking to its leaders. He's speaking to its members. And he says this in Revelations 3, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 22. It's a, quite a lengthy passage, but listen. It says, and unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name that thou livest, and you are dead. You have a name that you're alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, thou hast received what thou hast received, and heard, and hold fast, and repent. If, therefore, thou shalt not watch, I will come upon thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. But I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. To the church in Philadelphia, he says, and to the church and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, These things saith he that is holy and that he that is true, he that hath the key of David, and he that openeth and no man shutteth, and he that shutteth and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which they say they are Jews and are not, but, lo, but, but do lie. Behold, I will make them come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell on the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold fast which thou hast. Hold that fast which thou hast. That no man take your crown. Don't let anybody take your crown. Him that overcometh I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. And he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God. And the name of the city of my God. Which is the new Jerusalem. Which cometh down out of heaven from my God. And I will write upon him my new name. 
He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the church in Laodicea. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, write, these things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither hot nor cold. I would that thou were cold or hot, so then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, and are miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him. I will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh, I will grant to sit with me in my throne. Even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I know that you've all studied the Beatitudes, the fifth chapter of the book of Matthew. Jesus taught about the Beatitudes as he sat on Mount Beatitudes. And if you'll go with us to Israel this year, you'll sit on that same exact mountain where Jesus taught. So we're going to be going to Israel in, January, in June, and uh, late, late June, early July. We have a great group already, and I hope some of you will stir yourselves to join us. But you'll sit there, and this is where Jesus talked about the blessings. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are they who are, blessed are the meek. And he goes on, he talks about, I, I think there are uh, seven or nine blessings. But I don't know if you've ever heard, that, that's, the, that's the Beatitudes of the Mount, on Mount Beatitudes. Have you ever heard of the blessings or the Beatitudes of the Valley? Blessed are the lukewarm. Hmm? No, you haven't heard those. Why? Because Jesus never said that. But you would think from the lackadaisical attitude of many of his followers, you would think that these were one of his beatitudes. You see, there's an attitude that's creeping into Western civilization that is affecting what I refer to as cultural Christians. We allow culture to interpret our Christianity rather than Christianity to interpret our culture. Even here in Zimbabwe, often many of us are allowing our culture to interpret our Christianity rather than our Christianity to interpret our culture. And that's because we have failed to hold fast to the Word of God. This was an attitude that had crept into the church in Laodicea at the time John wrote the revelation to the churches of Asia. The believers in Laodicea wore the name Christian without actually practicing their faith. That's what Karen and Fidelis were talking about this morning. They had a form of godliness but denied the power thereof. They didn't actually believe the word of God. They didn't get excited about God. They weren't really excited about God's word. Blessed are the lukewarm. 
Blessed are the lukewarm. You see, the world wants our religion and wants our faith to be lukewarm. Because if it is, we don't create problems. We don't make waves. If we are lukewarm, we don't take a stand against the evils of our day. We don't take a stand against abortion, sexual immorality, homosexual practices. We don't take stand against the government that wastes our nation's resources and represses righteous teaching and practice. We won't speak out against unjust laws that are being passed for personal or short-term advantage. We won't care about the condition of our churches. We won't care about the condition of our schools, our hospitals, or for that matter, any of our institutions. See, at the time this letter was written, the lukewarm church wasn't taking a stand against emperor worship. There was a law that was passed that you worshipped the emperor as God. They weren't taking a stand against the participation in pagan festivals and feasts or theological heresies. You see, in our own time, you and I are affected by government decrees. And we're not taking a stand against them. But it's obvious that there is no clear monetary policy in our nation. Just more manipulation and hyperinflation. But there is no one standing up that I can see that says, this is wrong. Just stay quiet, stay under the radar. But let me tell you something. Some of you have a position of authority. You could actually call this out. Now we're going to let the currency run again. We know what the end result is. We're going to go back to the U.S. dollar again. Mark my words. Because there is no other solution. It's already a U.S. economy. We're all on a U.S. dollar economy. We just don't tell anybody. The only people that seem not to know is our government. But we'll return there, and then we'll go the full cycle again, because I'm sure they'll come back to, well, we're only going to put 200 million or 200,000 or whatever they were going to put into the market. They lied. They lied. They can't tell the truth because they are full of lies. They don't have any solutions. It's time for the church to stand up and say, wait, the emperor is naked. The truth is not being told. Not to tear down the government, but to bring people to book so that we can bring solutions. They don't want solutions. Our government does not serve the people. They serve themselves. They even call themselves the ruling class. Rulers rule people. They don't serve people. It's not just our government. It's governments around the world. In fact, there are globalist agendas that are being foisted on easily seduced, seduced members of our parliament. I call them per diem parliamentarians. Many, who can be, many of these parliamentarians can be manipulated or seduced by foreign NGOs or liberal agenda-based organizations, and all it takes is the price of a junket to a hotel with a drinking privileges and a per diem. Give me a per diem, let me drink as much as I want to, give me a nice hotel room, and I'll vote however you want me to. Not in the interest of my nation, not in the interest of my culture, not in the interest of truth or righteousness, 
but for personal gain. Many believers are affected by peer pressure of national or political groupthink or forces of political correctness. When these forces are arraying themselves in the public square, the lukewarm church doesn't object. The lukewarm church stays quiet. When muzzled by the law and eventually not allowed to tell the truths that Jesus Christ taught, the lukewarm church will hardly speak. We're being told now, don't say anything. Don't, shh. No, no, we must accept all faiths as being equal. No, all faiths are not equal. In fact, there is no faith that equals Christ. There's only one Christ, there's only one salvation through Jesus Christ and none other. Oh, no, you can't say that. Why can't I say that? Why? Because, if I, do, if, because if, I, if I say that all religions are the same, if I say that there are many roads to heaven, I lie to you. I'm going to tell you, there are many roads to hell, but there's one way to heaven, and it's through Jesus Christ. And I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. And now is not the time to be politically correct. Now is not the time to step back and be silent. Now is the time to be red hot on fire and speak the truth in love so that people don't go to hell. You see, the lukewarm will not stand by the authority of the scripture. The lukewarm will try to find a way to appease the politically correct agendas in the marketplace. And we'll do it in, probably in the name of loving everybody. We just have to love everybody. Well, listen, God loves all of us. But God will love you as he sends you to hell. He'll still love you, but he'll say, you made the choice to go to hell. You choose that, not him. He doesn't choose to send you to hell. You choose to go to hell. By your lifestyle, by not wanting to retain God in your memory, by wanting to recreate God in your image, but God still loves you. Just tap your neighbor and say, I think his preaching is still better than your amening. You see, most of us here in Zimbabwe, most of you and I were raised in the faith, surrounded by the faith. We have Bibles. We attend church on Sunday. We have been baptized. We've been catechized in church and Sunday school. But I'm afraid that we're becoming spiritually euthanized in a creeping culture that is rendering us impotent. And it's rendering us impotent to pass our faith soundly to the next generation. Pass our faith to those around us. I speak to many Christians. They've never led someone to Jesus Christ. They've never spoken about who Jesus really is. You see, we're so used to being hemmed in that our faith doesn't stir us and it doesn't excite us. It doesn't move us anymore. We're so used to laws and fear and, and intimidation by authorities and intimidation by governments and, and intimidation by the PC police and intimidation by other religions that we're afraid to stand up and say, wait a minute. 
Some of us aren't even excited about the gospel anymore. It's just like, well, you know, yeah, yeah, I go to church. Are you, yeah, I'm a Christian. Kind of, you know. Kind of. But it's like, like, kind of being pregnant. You either are or you aren't. Blessed are the lukewarm. Notice that's not what Jesus says. You see, the letter that John wrote was addressed to the pastors of the church. The pastor of the church in Laodicea. That's the one I want to look at today. It starts, and you can, you can turn to your Bible. Go to, go to the part about Laodicea. I think it's around the 14th chapter, 14th verse. But maybe you, should, maybe you should open your Bibles. Maybe you should take a pen out. Maybe you should circle a few things. Maybe God might speak to you through the word of God. It says, it starts with, to the church, or to the angel of the church. To the angel of the church, and it ends with, what the Spirit says to the churches. It's written for a local church in Asia Minor, but these letters were meant for all the churches of Asia Minor. This letter was circulated throughout all of Asia. In fact, prophetically, it's meant for all churches of all time, in all places. In fact, it's meant for you, and it's meant for me today. Now, there's two features of the city that I think you need to know about, the city of Laodicea, and I think they're noteworthy. First of all, Laodicea was a rich and prosperous city. In fact, in A.D. 60, there was an, a huge earthquake that virtually destroyed the whole city. Laodicea wanted nor sought no financial aid from Rome. Instead, the wealthy citizens of that city rebuilt their own city. Laodicea had three sources of wealth. It was a banking center. It was known for its soft black, raven black wool. And it had a famous school of medicine that developed a cream for curing eyesight, eye diseases. The second feature of the city of Laodicea was its lack of water supply. They had to pipe in water from a hot springs six miles away. And by the time the water reached the city, it was neither hot nor cold, but lukewarm. So that's why this message is so poignant that Jesus is speaking through John. You see, John's the scribe, but Jesus is the author of the letter. He describes himself in Revelation 3.14. He says, and unto the angel of the church of Laodiceans write, these things saith the amen. The amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. These things saith the amen. Everybody say, saith the amen. amen. What does amen mean? So be it. So be it. This is the end. He says, saith the one who has the final word. Saith the one who, when he says it, it comes to pass. This is what the amen says. He's defining himself. Jesus also spoke in that verse as the faithful and true witness. The faithful and true witness. You see, in the church of Pergamum, another church that was spoken about, the Bible talks about Antipas. He said, the Bible says, he is my faithful witness. And in Revelation 2.13, it says, I know your works and where you, where you dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And you hold fast my name and hast not denied my faith. 
Even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you where Satan dwells. I love this. He calls Antipas my faithful witness. Why? Because he was put to death for his faith. Antipas was called faithful. Faithful. Likewise, Jesus is the faithful witness to the Father because he is the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. He is the lamb of God. Jesus is the true witness. By the word, by the way, that word true in the scriptures means he is faithful and true to his promises. He's dependable, trustworthy, he's genuine, and he's real. That's pretty, pretty powerful, don't you think? So Jesus, like Antipas, is faithful and true. Now, in the Greek, these are three separate terms. The faithful, the true, and the witness. What a message. What a message to the church of Laodicea. Jesus is everything the church of Laodicea was not. This church was not faithful to Christ. This church was not true to Christ. And her witness to Christ was almost non-existent. Finally, Jesus speaks in Revelations 3.14 as the ruler of God's creation. He says, unto the angel of the church of Laodicea, write these things, saith the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. See, do we know who we're dealing with? He is the beginning of the creation of God. He is God, the ruler of God's creation. This title should have been well known by the church of Laodicea. Because Paul wrote to their sister city, Colossae, the Colossians. And you have to understand that these letters weren't just kept at one church. They were circulated and read many, many times throughout all the churches. And in Colossians, he said this. Colossians 1, 15. He said, he is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. Man, I don't know about you, but when you begin to know who you're dealing with, when you begin to understand who God is, that either puts a fire on the inside of you and excites you, Or it puts the fear of God in you. You see, Jesus is the ruler. Jesus is the beginning. Jesus is the end of God's creation. So I want you to remember. This is a message to the church of Laodicea. In their wealth, in their prosperity, they thought themselves as being in control. They thought they had it all together. They were smart. They were educated. This was the leading city. Jesus was telling them that although they thought that, he alone controls creation. In fact, he is the source of their wealth. He is the source of their prosperity. Jesus said in his evaluation of the church, in Revelation 3.15, he says, I know your deeds. I know your deeds. You know, nothing's hidden from God. Revelations 1, verse 14, he says, 
that he has eyes of blazing fire. I don't, I don't know about you. I, I, when I first read the book of Revelation, it scared me. As a young Christian, I would read it and I, and I think, one day I'm going to stand in front of Jesus. And his eyes are blazing fire. I don't know if you've ever stood in front of a man of God in the spirit. But have you ever felt like he can look straight through you? Have you ever had a man of God look at you and he says, well, tell me, what's going on in your life right now? And you want to put your eyes anywhere but in his. <laughs> Has that ever happened to you? Well, that's only a small touch of what it's going to be like when the blazing eyes of Jesus Christ look at you, the holy, the pure, the, the, the one and only. Listen, listen to what he says here in the 15th verse. I know your deeds. You know, I don't know about you, but <laughs> he says, I know your deeds, that you're neither hot, cold nor hot. Another version says, I know your works, that thou art neither cold or hot, and I would that you were cold or hot. Whew. You know, I don't know about you, but I remember thinking I could hide from God. Do you ever think you could hide from God? I thought, if I just don't say anything, if I just. Then one day I had an encounter with the Holy Spirit. And I realized that, you know what? My whole life is open before him. I can hide from you. I can hide from people around me. I can hide from my wife. But I can't hide from God. Can you see the church in Laodicea? This church is like the water in Laodicea. It's lukewarm. Lukewarm. She's lukewarm about faith. She's lukewarm about her religion. She's lukewarm about where she stands. The church is not cold nor hostile to the gospel. She's not rejecting the faith. But neither is the church hot or enthusiastic about the gospel. She's not excited nor on fire about the faith. Listen to see what Jesus says next in his evaluation of the church. Verses 15 and 16, he says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. You know, that's a nice way of saying what it really means. The Greek is far more expressive. In the Greek, it says, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? He says, you make me sick. You make me sick. I want to vomit. I want to throw up because you are lukewarm about me. Tap your neighbor. Say, I have no idea why he's preaching this this morning. Does Jesus have any reason to say this about our faith? Your faith? Are we joyful? Are we excited that we have been called into his service? Or are we drifting? Are we becoming infiltrated by the new age, the self-help, and the eastern cultic practices that are so prevalent now in especially charismatic Christianity? Are we mildly excited about our faith? How did the Laodicean church become so lukewarm in her faith? What happened? 
How, how does this happen? Well, let me postulate a position. Because Jesus tells us what went wrong. What, what went wrong. In verse, chapter 3, verse 17, he says, you say, you say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth. I do not need a thing. Can you see the problem? See, the church of Laodicea, like the city of Laodicea, was rich. She had earthly riches. She had spent herself on earthly riches. And the church and her members made this assumption. They assumed that earthly wealth meant heavenly wealth. They assumed that material riches meant spiritual riches. Isn't this kind of what the health and wealth gospel teaches? Aren't we hearing this message today that promises a wealth that, can't, that, that, that can be purchased without Christ? Oh, we say, come and buy of me. But let me tell you something. I, 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 I watch it. I watch it. We have a miracle a minute. Health promise. You can get a miracle by just coming to a crusade. Let the man of God give you your miracle. Of course, you have to pay for it. It only requires an offering or the purchase of some holy water or some holy oil or a weekend stay at a prophet's hotel. But then, you'll get it. When we preach some, and, and when we preach and we promise prosperity, we're making a big jump. We're making a jump too far from physical to spiritual prosperity. Now let me qualify that statement because I believe in God wanting to prosper his people. He says, I wish that you were in health and would prosper and be in health even as your soul doth prosper. He qualifies it. That's why what I talked about earlier this morning was that we have to begin to qualify the scriptures with scriptures. God's prosperity is for his saints that walk with him. And it's not prosperity to consume upon oneself. It's prosperity to extend his kingdom. It's prosperity to be a blessing. He says, I will bless you that you might be a blessing. Not that you might build another 50,000 or 50 room house. God doesn't mind if you live in a nice house. He doesn't mind if you drive a nice car. But that can't be the goal of your spirituality. That can't be the sum of your spirituality. That can't be the whole of it. Oh, look how prosperous he is. He must be really spiritual. No. No, we don't measure our spirituality by our stuff. But what you do with your stuff, how you live, the humility of your heart. This is what happened to the city of Laodicea. They didn't need help from Rome in rebuilding their city. After the earthquake in 60 AD, she said, I am rich. I have acquired wealth. I don't need a thing. In the same way, the church of Laodicea thought she needed no help from God. Not only she didn't need help from Rome, who, by the way, their emperor said he was God. We don't need help from the earthly God, and we don't need help from our heavenly God either. Isn't this one of the biggest dangers of riches? Those who have riches don't think they need God anymore?
I'll let that sink in. Proverbs 30, verse 8 says, this is David. He says, remove from me vanity and lies. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but feed me with food convenient for me. I love his attitude. Another place he says, don't, don't let me become so poor that I curse you, but don't let me become so rich that I forget you. Those with riches don't need God for daily bread. They don't need God for salvation and eternal life either. People who don't need the Lord don't get excited about God. They don't get excited about Jesus. They don't get excited about their faith. They don't get excited about serving. They don't get excited about helping other people. They become lukewarm. Blessed are the lukewarm. See, I'm sure you can see the comparison even with us. Even here in Zimbabwe, there, with all of our seeming lack and our corruption and our hardships, there are still many of us that are being blessed. There are many right here in this church that are being blessed. They're seeing a degree of blessing. They're seeing a degree of prosperity. In fact, there are many in Zimbabwe that have great earthly wealth and prosperity, material wealth. Do we assume this means they also have heavenly and spiritual wealth? Do we think that we are blessed because we deserve it? Do we, are we that good? Do, do, do you deserve to be blessed? Are you, are, are, is it because you're so good that you're blessed? Or is it God has given you a greater responsibility with the blessing he's given you? Do we think we can get along without God? Do we think that we can look after our own bread and our own salvation? Are we lukewarm? Or do any of us run the danger of becoming lukewarm? This verse scares me. Revelation 3.17 says, I am rich. I have acquired wealth. I do not need a thing. That's what the city said. That's what the church said. I need nothing. I don't need the Lord. But notice what Jesus says, the second half of that verse. But, do, but you do not realize that you are wretchful, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Whew. Now think about this with me. Laodicea was the center of banking and finance for that whole region. And Jesus says that they're poor. They had accumulated the wrong kind of wealth. Laodicea was known worldwide for its soft, raven-black wool. But Jesus said, you're naked. You see, it's possible to wear tailored suits and designer dresses, but still be naked in the eyes of God. Laodicea was famous for its healing eye creams. But Jesus said that they're blind. Like the Pharisees, they claim to have spiritual insight, but in reality, they do not see. Jesus dealt with this all the time. In fact, he dealt with it with the Pharisees. Do you remember when he healed the blind man? And uh, when he healed this blind man or this man that was blind from his birth, the disciples asked him, Master, whose sin was this? And then there's a contention. 
and the Pharisees come and, you know, the Pharisees speak of how they can see. And they begin to judge the blind man. And they get the man's family and say, who healed him? And, and, and oh, there's this ruckus. But if you'll go read that, and I'm not going to read it today, I'm, I'm running out of time, but go read John chapter 9, the whole chapter. You'll be amazed at the little argument that goes there about who can see and who can't see. Who God lets see and who thinks they can see. The Pharisees were the rich of the day. The Pharisees were the wealthy of the day. The Pharisees wore the nice clothes. And Jesus basically said the same thing he said to the church of Laodicea. You are wretched, you are poor, you are blind. You cannot see. You see, what Jesus is teaching us is that the city and the church were wretched and pitiful because they didn't know their true condition. They didn't judge themselves. They are miserable, but they don't know it. They think that they need nothing, when in fact, they need everything. They think they need nothing, when in fact, they are poor, blind, and naked. So what does Laodicea need to do? What do you and I need to do? How can their lukewarmness, their lukewarm faith be made hot again? Jesus says, verse 19, so be earnest, repent. It's the same cry, restore us, oh God. How do we get restored? We become earnest, we repent. To be earnest, isn't that the problem? They're not earnest in their faith. They're not zealous for God. They need to repent of the fact that their focus is on themselves, on what they want what they see rather than on Jesus. So he says, so be earnest and repent. How do they go about doing that? How do you and I go about doing that? Well, listen to what Jesus says in verse 18. He says, I counsel you, buy gold from me. Buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich. And buy from me white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness. And salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Don't you think he's speaking to the culture of the day? Don't you think he's speaking to the city of the day? Yes, he is. I counsel you. Don't forget. These are the words of the amen. The faithful and true. The creator. The ruler of God's creation. He says, I counsel you, almighty God, I'm telling you what to do. So this wasn't just a word of advice that they can take or leave. No, it's a command. God's commands never change. It's always repent. Restoration follows repentance. Repentance has to be studied. It has to be worked on. So here we have a city that's known for its banks and its finances. It's told to buy gold from Jesus. A city known for its black wool is told to buy white clothes from Jesus. A city known for its healing eye salve is told to buy eye salve from Jesus. When they buy from Jesus, they become rich. They cover their nakedness. And they can see again. The Odyssey's problem 
the people of the city and the church had a lukewarm faith because they bought from the wrong store. Somehow they ended up on the wrong trading floor. You see, Laodicea's solution? Buy from Jesus, the one who alone provides what is really needed. We studied Melchizedek in this church. Abraham had a chance to buy from the king of Sodom, or he could buy from Melchizedek. He made the right choice. He traded on the right trading floor, and he became the father of faith. He became blessed and became a blessing to all nations. You see, when we turn to Jesus, and we really turn to him with all of our hearts, that's when we get true riches. He's rich. When we turn to Jesus, that's when we get clothed in garments of righteousness. We're made holy. We're made pure by him. When we open our hearts to Jesus, our spiritual blinders and our spiritual blindness disappears. God doesn't want you to be blind. He wants you to see. Turn to Jesus and we'll find him in everything we need. How practical is this for you and I? For those of us in Zimbabwe. Our banking system primarily enriches the corrupt. So don't look to banking. Our textile industries, once the envy of the region, they don't exist anymore. They were destroyed. Don't look to the wool industry. Our medical systems, once the pride of Africa, now totally broken down. Don't look to the medical system. Admit that we have nothing. Admit you need everything. And look to Jesus for what you need. What is, the, what is true for the church in Laodicea, what is true for the city of Laodicea, it's true for every church and every believer. It's only by coming to Jesus that any lukewarmness on our part can be overcome. As believers and as Zimbabweans, I'm asking you to throw yourself at the feet of Jesus. I'm asking you to worship him. I'm asking him to make him the king of your life. I'm asking him to make him your heart's desire. Crave the presence of God. Crave the person of Christ like a deer panteth for the streams of water. So my soul longeth after thee. Listen to what it says. Revelation 3.20, and I'll close with this. It says, here I am. I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Now I know many times we've used this and we usually think that this is Christ knocking at the unbeliever's heart's door. But it's not. Oh, and he does. Let me tell you something. He does knock on unbelievers' doors. But he's knocking at the door of all of our hearts. But in this verse today, Jesus is knocking, knocking not on unbelievers' hearts, but he's knocking on the heart of his church.
I believe he's knocking on the heart of Celebration Church today. I believe he's knocking on your heart and my heart today. He says, will you let me come in? Will you let me be all and be in all? Will you let me be the alpha, the omega, the beginning, the end? Will you let me be the amen, the faithful and true, the God of creation to you? See, this portion of Revelation is Jesus speaking through his beloved friend, the Apostle John. He's writing seven letters to seven churches. John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Five of these churches are strongly admonished by the Lord. He says Ephesus because she had forsaken her first love. Pergamum because she was tolerant of those who practiced evil. Thyatira because she chose cultural approval in order to secure economic well-being. And Sardis because she was dead. Laodicea because she was warm in her, lukewarm in her faith. But two of the churches, Smyrna and Philadelphia, they received no criticism from the Lord. Can I tell you something? From a purely secular and worldly point of view, not biblical at all, the five churches that were being admonished, if you had looked at those in the day, from a secular point of view, you would have said, these are the prosperous churches. These are the big churches. These, why? Because they, comp they compromised everything, but they looked good on the outside. Like our offering today, they had a form of godliness, but denied the power thereof. From a purely secular and worldly point of view, those two churches that were, that were not admonished, those two churches that were, you know, uh, that were left Philadelphia and Sardis, those two churches would have looked like the struggling churches. They would have been the ones that, man, those guys, they're tough. What makes for an unsuccessful church? Well, from a worldly point of view, it's poverty, it's tiny size, it's small visible impact. That's, that's what the average person says. From a worldly point of view, Smyrna and Philadelphia are the least successful churches. Yet these are the churches Jesus prays the most. How does Jesus measure success? Not only in the church, but in our lives. Well, Jesus praised Ephesus for sniffing out her heresy and heretics. He said, you hated false prophets. You hated false apostles. Smyrna is praised for endurance under trial. Pergamum is praised because she's faithful, even to the point of death. Thyatira is praised for her faith, service, and perseverance. And Philadelphia is praised for keeping God's word and confessing Christ before men. Here's what I'm saying. Today, he who has an ear to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church, let him hear. He who has an ear to hear what God is saying to you and I, to you, let him hear. But I know this. I want to be far from being lukewarm. God, when you come, I want to either be hot or cold. But I think I'll choose hot. I don't want to be wishing I had said something. and Watch one of you go to hell because I did. I didn't. I don't want to think about some of my friends. I was thinking about some of my friends today that have become wealthy and they're no longer walking in the faith. I was talking to someone the other night and they were talking about some people that have gone on to do wonderful things in their lives, seem to be successful, but have gotten caught up in new age doctrine and 
are more interested in their comfort and their success in this world than in eternity. I mean, can, I can I tell you something? Jesus is coming soon. If you can't see the signs of the times, let me tell you something. They're knocking on your door. The coronavirus. Folks, the Bible talked there would be pestilences, there would be plagues, there would be outbreaks of disease, wars and rumors of wars. These things are happening. There are going to be economic meltdowns. There's going to be things that will shake this planet, shake this earth in such a way that many will die of heart attacks just because of what's going on. You'll become so concerned because your hearts are tied to this world instead of the next. Don't let this world make you lukewarm for God. Amen? Thanks for listening. For more teachings and videos, visit celebrationmen.org.